Hey everybody, you're listening to the Enlighten Me podcast and I'm your host Mackenzie. I'm super excited to have you here today because I got to interview an old friend of mine, Jerry Minette. Jerry is currently a doctoral student at the University of Illinois studying black student activism. I think this is a particularly interesting topic right now, especially for those of us in the U.S., but really all across the world, because there has been an increase in black activism, especially since the year 2012 when Trayvon Martin was tragically killed. We have seen a lot more people stand up and use their voices, and it's those types of movements like Black Lives Matter that Jerry spends her time studying and figuring out how we can get people more involved to really use their voices. No matter where you stand on this topic or what you believe, I think this is something we all should be educated about, and Jari does a great job of doing that today. Jari is open about her own personal experiences as a Black woman in the United States and how that has led her to where she is today and what she's doing. She talks about growing up in the South and a racialized experience she had in college that led her to want to become even more of an advocate for those who didn't know quite how to use their voice to make a difference. In this conversation, we talk about Jerry's story, but we also talk about the history of Black activism and what we can learn from it. And Jerry also addresses a lot of stereotypes that surround activism and even gives us all some ways that we can get involved. I think you're gonna love what she has to share because it's really practical advice and it's not always going to mean that we all need to get involved in a protest, but she addresses ways that we can still stand up for what we believe in and use our voice no matter what platform we have. I want to be clear that we do discuss U.S. politics in this conversation, and I know that can be a sensitive topic for some people, so I just want to be clear on the front end about that. But once again, no matter what you believe or where you stand, I think it's super valuable to learn from people who are different than us. That's exactly what Jerry brings to the table. She has had different experiences than I have. She has a different story and therefore has a different perspective that was really enlightening for me and brought a lot to my attention. So I think you're going to really enjoy what Jerry has to say in hearing her opinion and thoughts and experiences, and I hope it empowers you to stand up for what you believe in. Before you keep on listening, I would love to ask you a favor. I would love to ask if you could head on over on iTunes and leave me a rating or a review. It's Christmas season and people tend to get more and more generous, and so I'm asking if you would extend a little bit of that generosity to me and leave me a rating or a review because it helps other people to find the show. So you're really doing a lot of other people a favor too. I so appreciate that generosity. Thank you so much for doing me that favor. And now, please enjoy this conversation with my friend, Jari. Hey, Jari. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm so glad to have you here. Can you just start by introducing yourself to everybody that's listening? Sure. So my name is Jari Marie. I messed that up already. <laughs> my name is Jari, like Marie with a J. I do that because like people screw up my name all the yeah. time. But anyway, I'm Jerry Minette. I'm a third year doctoral student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I currently work as a teaching assistant for a first year experience program on campus, and I study Black student activism, um, more generally Black resistance movements. Is there anything else that I should share? Um, no, that's perfect. That's the perfect summary okay. of what you're doing right now. And that's actually how we met too. We started grad school at the same time. You're way smarter than I am and you're getting your PhD, but I was starting my master's at the same time. So that was fun because we had a couple classes together and taught together for a little while. So I really enjoyed getting to spend time with you that way and got to learn a little bit about your background. And so I would love kind of, obviously we're gonna talk about the student activism today and kind of what you've been learning about that. 
but I would love it if you could kind of just tell us about where you're from and where you went to school for undergrad, because I feel like that's probably a big part of your story as well. Sure. And I just to, I just want to say that me pursuing a PhD does not make me smarter. In fact, <laughs> it may be an indication that things are not all together in tight. <laughs> but I am, I'm from Mississippi. I was born and raised in Meridian, Mississippi. I spent a little time um, outside of Jackson, Mississippi, which is our capital. Um, but I attended the University of Mississippi for undergrad and my mm-hmm. master's. Uh, my undergrad degree is in English. Um, and my master's is in higher education. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so when you were in undergrad, what years was that? Oh, you're dating me. Um, but <laughs> I, uh, my freshman year um, started in 2007 and I graduated undergrad in 2011. Okay. So that was around the time that Obama was running for president, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. And that's kind of, I only ask because I know that's kind of a little bit a part of your story too. So can you talk about maybe what led you to become interested in studying activism, like the background on that for you personally? Sure. Um, so as I mentioned, I attended the University of Mississippi. Um, colloquially and in athletics, we refer to the institution as Ole Miss. Yeah. And it is a it is a personal choice to, to try to shy away from that. But that I think that that illuminates one of the tensions of being from the South, specifically being uh-huh. from Mississippi and like being aware of the history, always kind of being like enveloped in that history. But like it feeling like a regular part of life, because we know that Ole Miss is how folks refer to the the slave master's wife back in the day. So it's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting. But um, mm-hmm. those are the types of tensions that you deal with attending that institution. Attending the University of Mississippi, um, before I enrolled, you know, like folks back home, teachers who I really respected, they were like, why are you going to this place where you're not wanted? Um, but I wasn't really thinking about it that way. At that time, mm-hmm. I wanted to be a pharmacist. And um, Ole Miss had the only pharmacy school in the mm-hmm. state. So I was like, that's that's where I'm yeah. going. I feel like my chances would be better enrolling in pharmacy school, everything like that. So I went and I went to some visit days and met some really cool people, um, like pot- potential students as well as administrators. Um, so the fact that I was, quote, not wanted there, they didn't really register with me, I guess you mm-hmm. could say. But I mean, ra- racialized events occurred on campus. I remember um, like the Ku Klux Klan, they came for a rally me even like thinking about getting involved in activism it kind of starts with like I guess you what I would call political activism I was very involved in uh President Obama's first campaign um I was a part of the college democrats like I worked at the actual Oxford campaign office like passing out the yard signs and calling folks and canvassing Mm -hmm. and all that um, just because I was really excited to have a black president, to have a president that looked like yeah. me, um, because I was raised by my mom, my grandma, and my great aunt. So like, I had these black women rearing me, and um, my granny and my aunt Louise, they were much older. They were born in the 20s, so like they saw a lot of things, and like they would tell me stories about like how real the racism was back in the 60s and 70s. So, I mean, it's still present, but like it, it, it looked different at the time. So like, I was just elated for the possibility to have a president that looked like me that I feel like in a way could honor their legacies and all the stuff that they had to do for me to be 
where I was at this this predominantly white institution where at that time, what, 30 years prior, somebody that looked like me wasn't, yeah. they weren't going to be able to go there. So um, I was super geeked about that. So when he won, like, I was delayed. I was at a watch party with my friends. We um, we were at a an off-campus apartment, not too far from campus, but um, when they announced that he won, he gave a speech out in Hyde Park. Like, we were all happy and excited. So we ran outside to celebrate. And as we were like, you know, running around and, and hollering and stuff, this white truck passed by and it was, I'm assuming he was a student. It was a white male. Mm-hmm. It looked like he was in his twenties and he yelled at the N word at us. So we all went back in the house and I just, um, I reflect on that moment. Well, I was reflecting on that moment, like while I was trying to figure out what I wanted to study in grad school. Cause I honestly like I remember that it happened, but it wasn't necessarily like at the foreground of my experience, um, just because like I, I had a good experience at Ole Miss. Like I was, and I, I know that that is attributed to a lot of mentors, a lot of black women who shielded me from racism and negative experiences that could occur there. But just to be perfectly honest, there were white people who, there who I felt like were in my corner just as well. But I don't know. I just I have a different different understanding of of race yeah. and racism at this point in my experience. But circling back to the original question, um, after that, mm-hmm. uh, well, when I was reflecting on that incident, I was thinking about that, and I was also thinking about the fact that when I was uh, an undergrad, like things would happen that would piss me off or get me riled up, like racial incidents would occur or things would be brought to my attention. Like there are several buildings on campus named after racist white people, uh, named after segregationalist governors who yeah. were white supremacists, et cetera. So yeah. just kind of like learning that and trying to work through that myself. Like I remember um, I was in a, sco- a scholarship program. It, it was need-based and also merit-based. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was located in Bartman Hall. Now, I was also a part of a, uh, a STEM program called image that was also housed in that program there were a few other there were a few other offices in there but those were the two that I most often frequented like I would go to that building at least like three or four times a week at minimum mm-hmm. but I was reading one day and came across the fact that Vardaman Hall was named for James K Vardaman who was a segregationist like in the 80s so I'm like why are you gonna put these programs for black folks on this white <laughs> campus in a building named after a white supremacist like yeah. that's messed up that's effed up yeah. and I would like talk to people about it talk to students and they'd be like yeah that's messed up but you know no one was trying to like organize or mobilize right. with me and when I would talk to my mentors they kind of be like yeah it's messed up but it, like it essentially that's the way it is and right. you need to um study how them grades looking yeah and eventually I was just like you know okay I'll go with that um so I was just you know, fast forward um, to me working in student affairs and seeing these students like emblazoned and and um, empowered to to speak up and to resist what's what's going on in society. Really, like geeked me up and made me excited about what was going on in these campuses. So I really my question stemmed from me wanting to know like what was the difference between myself and those students. Like, what was the catalyst to get them? involved enough to like speak up and participate in direct action protest and activism and and try to make things better on their campus for sure and so did you like was that 
automatic like how did you come to the decision to go get your PhD then with all that like you were just curious and started asking questions and thinking about this but you were still an undergrad then right I think that throughout like I changed my major like five times but through all of those changes I think in the back of my mind my plan was to at some point earn a PhD so that like I would work in industry for like 25 30 years and then like in my old age retire and be a professor but with all of the different changes the timeline kind of I didn't really like put a whole lot of effort or concentrate a lot on like when these things would happen but with my undergrad I I eventually um, graduated with an English degree and when I first graduated from Ole Miss I uh, I spent the year at the University of Tennessee I first went there um, with the intention of enrolling in a master's of architecture program I did that about a month, but like I wasn't sleeping. They didn't feel Mm -hmm. good to me. And also like the fact that there was a lot of precision um, involved in architecture. And I guess I just I hadn't considered that, especially thinking about the fact that my background is in English, which I had the prerequisites for the program because of me being in STEM for um, the years prior. But like still, I didn't know what I was doing. And you like in a drawing, if your lines are like a 32nd of an inch off in a, a rendering or in a drawing, like you could end up killing oh, wow. like thousands of people. Cause if you build a building based on that, like yeah. it's not going to be right. And that just like, yeah. that stressed me out. And I was really struggling getting those lines to meet. Um, but I ended up uh, enrolling in higher ed program at the university of Tennessee, but I couldn't find an assistantship just because it was like maybe either the last week in July, the first week in August, classes were supposed to start maybe like August 12th or 13th. And the um, the director of the higher ed program, she basically just kind of like let me in. She looked at my, my scores and she was like, okay, you know, I think that you would have gotten in anyway. So she um, yeah. was really helpful in that regard. But my understanding of how I would go about finding an assistantship the next year, it didn't align with what she told me on the front end didn't necessarily align with how things worked out when the time came to look for an assistantship. So I ended up going back to Mississippi and doing higher ed. Um, but the, I promise it all relates. So uh, after I finished my master's at Ole Miss, my only goal was to find a job outside of Mississippi, just because outside of living in Knoxville for that year, I've been in Mississippi my whole life. So yeah. I got a job here at the U of I with a pre-college program. And I was doing that. I did that for two years before starting the doctoral program. And I really enjoyed the work, but I knew that I wouldn't be able to do the things that I wanted to do uh, without a terminal okay. degree. Um, I was in an entry-level position, and I learned a lot of what not to do mm-hmm. as an administrator from my boss with that first job that I had. Yeah. And really just that experience kind of um, – that in, in that particular moment, that was a catalyst for me pursuing the PhD because I saw how he was running the office and I saw like how he treated me and other employees. And I'm like, I just, I don't want to be that. But uh, my original goal was to be a chief diversity officer or a dean of students upon graduating. Um, but now I'm leaning more towards the academy and being a professor just because even like having a, a clear understanding of like power dynamics on campus and organization even I feel like as a faculty member I'd be able to affect more change yeah so what are your plans for after school are you definitely getting a job at a university Um, well it depends if someone will have me 
Um, <laughs> but <laughs> right now, I think that um, I would try to pursue a, a postdoc position, um, okay. either in education or in African-American studies, just to have an opportunity to refine like my research agenda and to have an opportunity to do more writing. Because my understanding is that with the postdoc, you... It's, it's supposed to be designed as a time for you to write more before attempting to get on the, the job market. So mm-hmm. that is my plan. Yep. Yep. Well, we will keep you in our thoughts and prayers during that process. Thank but you, you have a Thank little you. time before you have to worry about that. So Yes. So I guess just to, before we move on to talk more about activism, can you just tell us, I'm wondering for people that are listening you know, across the country and even across the world. I know I have some listeners that are in the U.S. What would you say for those people that are maybe thinking, like like for me, I'm thinking that's so crazy that you literally saw members of the Ku Klux Klan come to your campus and you're my age. Like, it's not like you're 90 years old, Mm -hmm. you know? And, but is that something that would you say is definitely predominantly in the South? since that's where you spent a lot of your youth or now that you've moved out of the South, um, what has been your experience with that? Like, is that relevant no matter where we're located or what would you say to that? Absolutely. I, I like, we know that racism exists everywhere, but like, yeah, I don't know if it would be as likely for the KKK to come out in their hoods in the Midwest or outside yeah. of the South. I mean, in Trump's America, I don't, I don't know. I don't put anything past right. anybody at this point. But I think that that really kind of gets at how racism looks different in different parts of the country. Like, it's, I, I would argue that the black people, it, it may feel the same at this point. But um, that was one of the things that was most shocking to me when I moved to the Midwest, that, like, the racism is, is, is on and popping. And I would say in some ways, like, it's more... I mean, it's more covert in some ways mm-hmm. in 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 the Midwest, but still, I I think it's hard to 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 pinpoint. But I think that it's always been there, and I I say that just because I feel like I have experienced more. I've had more like racialized experiences with like random folks mm-hmm. here in the Midwest than elsewhere. Like this is a simple example and that's that's the thing that's hard like with microaggression microaggressions or macroaggressions like it may not, like not yeah. seem like a big deal or people listening from the outside may say well they just may be a mean person or but it's it's more to it than that and that's what makes it so hard to like pinpoint but I was participating in a research study and I had to pick up meals um, mm-hmm. from one of the buildings on campus. I can't even think of the name of the building now, but there's like a circle drive, but there weren't any parks. So I, I was literally like going to run in to get my food. So I pulled like as close mm-hmm. to a car as I could out of the way, but there was a van behind me that was trying to move or get by. So it was a, a white woman. She like, she was, and I believe she's on the passenger side, but she like rolled the window down. She's like, you can't park there. And she was like very hostile. So I'm looking like, you know, yeah. is this serious? Like, One, two, I feel pretty confident that you could like get around my car, but okay, whatever. So I get back in the car and I move and like as they're passing by, she like puts her hand up, like trying to be nice now. Like, you know, I was just like that. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I'm used to in the South, like if in the South, I feel like I feel like if somebody is like super racist, like 
the overt mm-hmm. racism, racism, like I don't want you near me in the South, like that person will make that clear. It would be like no mm-hmm. question about their feelings about me. Whereas, you know, someone who someone who may be racist, but still like, you know, not not show it in that same way or may like feel comfortable around black people like it. It, it looks different. Whereas in the Midwest, like people like people are like nice, nasty or like mm-hmm. they they have this nice veneer. But like they would be more more apt to, you know, try to throw me under the bus or sure. do something racialized. Right. I mean, I I totally I mean, I don't I can't relate, obviously, but I get what you're saying, because I feel like there's, I don't know, I work with a lot of black students and especially the males, they love to make, not not, not all of them, but some of them love to make jokes about being, about them being black. And like, if I say, if I tell them to do something or ask them a question or whatever, and their response is, is it because I'm black? Mm-hmm. And they're joking, but, you know, I think that's a real thing that they actually mm-hmm. do wonder sometimes, you know, in other instances. And that's obviously something I can't relate to, but... I feel like that's what you were experiencing in that moment. Maybe like, even though there wasn't any racist comment in there, you're wondering like, is that because of my skin color? And I, I wonder the same thing for you because I know the exact study that you're talking about. Cause I did the same one or one similar to it. And I, I probably did that a hundred times where I ran and parked right in that circle drive where you're not supposed to, <laughs> cause you're just running in for one second to grab something. And I never got yelled at. Nobody ever said anything to me. People would just go around mm-hmm. my car. And so the fact that it happened to you and not me, you know, like you have to wonder, like, why sure. would that happen? Yeah. And in, in, in that particular instance, like, I, I mean, like a lot of white people, they read black bodies as violent. And I'm a big black woman. I mean, the people on your podcast can't see me, but like <laughs> I, I am aware of that. I'm aware of like how people may read my presence mm-hmm. so that that could be perceived as like a hyper awareness or like people may not even be like studying me or caring yeah. you know right, but right. but because I've been in instances where it did matter like they're there and just sure. because of like how society is set up because I could yeah. you know I could wear a hoodie and I'm locking my hair now like if people look quickly they might think that I'm a man just because of my size yeah. So, I mean, that's that's definitely something that I am cognizant of. And like um, yeah. African-American psychology, there is a concept called cultural mistrust where it mm-hmm. basically says like because of the way the black people are treated in society, they may they may um, approach all white people with a certain amount of distrust or mm-hmm. white people in like structural entities like healthcare, education, etc. Like they may approach them with some mistrust or they might be less um, likely to seek services it's it's rooted specifically in um in relation to like people seeking out mental health services but i think it still applies just because a lot of of violence has been done unto black people under the name of these these entities absolutely no i think that makes sense thank you for explaining that Okay, so I want to ask you about activism now, since that's the thing that you study. I guess first I want to ask a little bit, you told me one of the things you're interested in studying is the connections between like activist movements from the past and those of the present. Mm -hmm. And so 
you know, not everybody would associate a movement like Black Lives Matter with the civil rights movement or something like that. But can you tell us like what connections are there kind of and where do the roots of those activist movements begin and and what connections exist for those that are taking place now and those of the past? Well, I personally believe that everything is connected. Maybe not what we see that meets the eye, but I think that I definitely think there's a connection between black resistance movements of the past and those of the present. Because I would argue that we're we're fighting for the same stuff now that we were fighting for back then. Mm-hmm. Maybe not like in a literal sense, like the civil rights movement. Like they wanted integration and they wanted they want to be able to vote. Mm-hmm. And we have those rights, but like if you think about things critically, those rights are being like rolled back and rewritten in ways that still disenfranchise people. Yeah. So I, I definitely think that there is a connection there. Some some scholars say, and I would agree that black folks have been like resisting and fighting for their freedom since they were the captured in the slave trade. But I struggle because I, you know, we have our history is 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 deeper and it goes further back than than slavery. But I think as far as contextualizing resistance movements in America, like that's that's where it starts because even like enslaved folks, they. They weren't necessarily like having rallies and and sit-ins and things like that, but they were doing things to resist the the system that they were were cap were captured and expected to buy into. Mm-hmm. So like they would break tools and you know put things in masses food and things of that nature. But moving forward, like thinking more so about like the civil rights movement and more like. That's historical activism, but that's typically like where the conversation about black student activism starts. But black students um, that were attending HBCUs or historically black colleges and universities, they um, they were participating in activism like prior to the 60s. More so like, well, not more so, but like dealing a lot with like seeking shared governance and wanting to have some autonomy in their their educational pursuits um some similar things that that white students Mm -hmm. were protesting for on their college campuses like the first student protest that people typically point to occurred at harvard like in the 1700s Mm -hmm. and it was about butter and even though like that seems trivial like it was still like students wanting to have a say in their experience on campus. Mm -hmm. Um, So with the the Black student movement, I think that there's that piece, that desire for shared governance, but there's also the piece that that looks to address racialized issues on campus. Um, So I specifically focus on racial justice activism Mm -hmm. just because I, I think it's important. I do. I, at, since I've been in the program, I've learned more about intersectionality. I um, hope to take a class on black feminism soon just to to have a better understanding of like the distinctions between people's experiences. Because a lot of times black folks and other people of color, they are um, treated as a monolith. And that's not the case. So I want to be uh, better trained in ways that I can articulate that in my research. Yeah. No, I think that was a good explanation. And I guess I'm wondering now, like, so you said it's kind of fighting for similar principles altogether, even though there's so many years in between the span of that fight. But how do, like, do you think there's something to learn 
from movements of the past uh, for those that are participating in those movements today? Like, can we take lessons from those movements? Sure. One of my personal beliefs is that if Black people knew more of their history, like, we would be able to do more with what we have, um, with, mm-hmm. I guess, our the, the cards that we've been dealt by society and by the patriarchy and white supremacy. Um, so I, I, I'm i saying all that to say that, like, conservatives especially, like, are they're very ahistorical. Like, they don't like to talk about what happened in the past, but the past informs the present and the future. Like, I remember when Trump was first elected, mm-hmm. the dean of the College of Education, Dr. Anderson, he... There were some other professors there, but I specifically remember his comment. And he it was basically to the effect of like, you know, we've been here. Y'all shouldn't trip. Same stuff happened when Nixon was elected. And it's like, wow, you know, it I, that just kind of blew my mind because I'm not super familiar with his presidency. I know Watergate. Yeah. Um, he didn't right. serve out his term. You know, he was crooked, yeah. quote unquote, et cetera, et cetera. But right. Just kind of thinking about the the similarities and how he so easily made the parallels between Nixon's presidency and like basically like the backlash that that happened in the conservative community after JFK and and Lyndon B. Johnson. Like that's that's exactly what we're seeing. People were mad because we had black presidents. So like they're going all in with this crazy person who has no kind of qualifications to to lead a country Mm -hmm. on top of being racist and homophobic and xenophobic. Right. So we definitely have stuff to learn. I just think it's a matter of like picking up a book and reading it. And um, it's pushing back against that, that desire to, to hide the history. Sure. I feel like that's probably true for most movements and most, you know, I don't know, any kind of anything to do with politics truly but any kind of movement really like you have to kind of understand what's happened up to this point to be able to really knowledgeably make an impact and then Mm -hmm. I remember too okay Dr. Williamson Lott from the University of Washington you know who I'm talking about Mm -hmm. okay so she yeah she wrote the yes yes power yeah she wrote that book yeah so she and she went to school at U of I. And so he had her kind of give a guest presentation and she was talking about she's talking about a lot of different things, but she talked about activism in particular and how it was kind of frustrating her to see students kind of start from scratch in a way when they really didn't have to mm-hmm. on their campuses. Like like mm-hmm. they're they're reinventing mm-hmm. the wheel when they don't need to, you know, and mm-hmm. and it's like this has been done before you, so why don't you take a lesson from this page in the book, and rather than just starting mm-hmm. from scratch when there are actually a lot of resources for you. So I thought I thought that was really interesting, and again, something you don't really understand if you don't know history, and so kind of mm-hmm. maybe the first place to start if you're passionate about something. Again, whether or not it's a movement or whatever, but is to kind of research the history on it, which seems really basic, but <laughs> but that's a great point, I think. Absolutely, I like firmly believe that, and I think that's like maybe part of my problem uh, progressing through the program. Like I see all these things that I want to read because I want to make sure that I am capturing like the totality of the experience, and I also want to make sure that I'm reading all the things so that I am 
like giving an accurate representation yeah. of these people's experience. Absolutely. But definitely, I think we there are way more opportunities than we acknowledge or maybe even realize to to look back to the past to to show us how to to move forward. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's a good kind of segue into talking about those movements of today. I keep referencing Black Lives Matter. Are there other movements that you're studying in particular or any that you're you're aware of that are going on? Yeah, with thing about Black Lives Matter is it's decentralized. So and there's I mean there are like I don't know if they call them bylaws, but there there is a an umbrella organization for Black Lives Matter. However, I don't think that all Black Lives Matter chapters necessarily like report to that that umbrella organization. Which and I think that that is by design, just because a lot of movement. I mean, if you're thinking about people being considerate of the history, the founders of that movement, they they were they were cognizant of the fact that a lot of movements of the past they had like one figurehead and one person that people look to mm-hmm. for guidance. And with this movement, like it's more so rooted in um, grassroots activism and like the communities doing what is necessary for their own communities to thrive. Um, So I think that there's a a lot of activism happening in in different pockets all over the country. In all honesty, I am I'm particularly interested in activism in the South just because like from my experience, it wasn't a whole lot of it going on while I was at school. Sure. I, I'm at this point where I, I feel that there may, well, there was definitely um, a, an uptick after my graduation. I suspect that um, like all of these, the, these deaths of, of black folks kind of catalyzed people a lot uh, in, yeah. in my early research project a lot of students they referenced Trayvon Martin yep. that was the catalyst for Black Lives Matter that was um, kind of like the starting point and then Mike Brown being murdered kind of like got everything like up and, and rolling and off the ground um, as far as it becoming like a, a national sort of platform or program but like Dream Defenders in Florida, they're doing a lot of racial activism work. Also, like if you think about Parkland, like that also that occurred in Florida, like the the um, protesting around gun violence that those students are doing. I think mm-hmm. that that's impactful. Okay. Yeah. W- one thing about that I'll say is that a lot of times, like specific people are pushed to the forefront for specific reasons. Some of those reasons, like being racist or, or racialized. And I don't want to discredit the the work of those the, the, the parking students because I think that they're doing great work. But I just would also like to use this platform to to point to like Chicago, for instance. Like Chicago gets a really bad rap, but there are folks there like protesting just as well. But they didn't necessarily get that that same shine or that mm-hmm. that same space to speak about it as those students. And I will argue that that's because of what the parking students look like versus what these folks in Chicago look like. No, I think that's interesting. And as far as, I mean, you, you talked about those movements being effective and powerful. I think one difference that I've noticed and tell me if I'm wrong, is that their effectivity seems to be 
Is effectivity a word? Effectiveness? That, I think that's what I mean. I like the effectivity, though. <laughs> um, their effectiveness really stems from just, I don't want to say just awareness, but awareness. That's a huge part of it is mm-hmm. gathering awareness and education and kind of empowering people to vote to make a difference and take power themselves to make a difference. And that's different than what the civil rights movement, for example, did in that a lot of people were denied voting rights. And so it wasn't just like, make sure you get out and vote for what you believe in. It was really making the behind the scenes differences as far as like the politics went. Like Martin Luther King Jr. literally was meeting with John F. Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson and Mm -hmm. to see these policy changes take place. And so I think that's kind of one big difference that I've noticed, but maybe I'm totally wrong on that. Maybe there is a lot of policy action taking place behind the scenes that we don't see. Um, So what would you say as far as like that part being effective? Because we know that even though it's not as interesting to talk about, the policy changes like behind the scenes, the law and the politics and all that good stuff is really what makes the biggest difference. So what would you say to those things? So to your point about um, awareness and education, I would I would argue that that was um, at the forefront of the civil rights movement as well, just because yeah. like I, I kind of think about like the children's march, like a lot of a lot of like school age, like grade school age kids participated in the civil rights movement. Yeah. And that was like that was by design because like well and that's the thing like we always looked at Martin Luther King which he was dope he was a superhero but there were a whole lot of people behind the scenes like you know doing the organizing and doing that the work on the ground to for him to even be able to have that platform to go to those meetings and be the the face of the movement but like that whoever who whoever had the idea to put kids in the march like that was because it knew that you know there were media outlets there and that this would be on TV and like the, the quote unquote good white people in the North, like they like, of course you should be appalled if you see like little bitty kids getting sprayed across um, highways by, by water hoses and things like that. So I think that they had their own ways to try to Mm -hmm. raise awareness. Like they didn't have social media like we do. So they did is utilize those media outlets for, for that purpose of, of raising awareness. Um, as far as policy goes, I, since I've been here at the University of Illinois, one, I say the class that probably changed my life was critical race theory. Um, and one of the, um, the central tenets of critical race theory is that it um, surrounds the permanence of racism. So it's just basically like racism isn't going away. And that sounds very pessimistic, but if you like look at history, there have been so many times where like laws were enacted policies were put into place and time will pass and they will be retrenched. So if I feel like with politics, if it was like actually not dirty, like we could make real change, but that I think that goes back to the permanence of racism. It's like the system is designed. It's set up for black people to fail. It's set up for racism to continue to exist because like, we all do things mm-hmm. that keep white supremacy in place. Like if you go like anything that um, like related to capitalism, like if you go shop 
um, on Black Friday for Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Like you're you're feeding the machine. If you I don't if you eat pork, like I I think it was in What the Health that it showed like these farms in the Carolinas, like black people, like communities of black people dying of cancer, like so many, so that like you can't say that this is a coincidence, but it's because of, of capitalism, people trying to make money, people like making these pig farms and not properly disposing of the waste right. and killing a whole community of people. Like, so, and I, I love bacon, but yeah. you know, thinking about that, it's, it's, also, it's about awareness and being more conscious and trying to make more decisions sure. that impact society positively. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's good. I'm glad that you addressed that because I, I've all, I've often wondered like, okay, these movements are great, but are they getting anything done? Like, are they doing the behind the scenes mm-hmm. work? And is this education enough? And even though I'm obviously a huge advocate for education, like I can't help but wonder, or is this effective? So I think that's really good. And I guess too, with that, it's also hard because a lot of times these movements can be so controversial, like even Black Lives Matter has gotten pretty controversial. And I'm like, man, I really need to like read up on this and figure out what I agree with and, you know, what I don't agree with or whatever. And I don't know. Do you think that that's like what? Why do you think that happens? And is that is that fair? Like, do you think that it's still something I guess I want to know? is that the best thing that we can do? Like, if we do agree with a movement, like, is the best thing to do get involved? Like, even if we're not students or whatever, like, should we be involved in these? Why or why not? Sure. I I feel like everybody should do their part. I mean, personally, I feel like, I feel like the onus is on white people to Mm -hmm. dismantle white supremacy. However, based upon like my beliefs in critical race theory, like white people aren't going to do the work to dismantle the system because that would mean they have to give up their privilege, which like it makes sense. People don't want to give up privilege. And these it's not just like folks that ride with Trump and who support him, like people like all people Mm -hmm. possess some sort of privilege. However, like white people have white privilege they're like just like the you didn't have anybody holler at you about parking in the circle like that's Mm -hmm. you get to live your life in peace you get to pick up your food for your study in peace whereas like I gotta you know go through all of this wondering why she said something to me wondering was I well I was in the wrong because I wasn't supposed to park there but like (laughs) was that response warranted having having to um kind of consider all of all of those things I think that the answer is everybody doing their part. That could be joining a movement that you feel like aligns with um, with your beliefs. That could be like it could be as simple as like calling out your auntie or your 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 granddad that says something racist or that is supporting Trump and like mm-hmm. you for no reason because there's really no reason to support Trump. I'm all for like free speech and people having. A right to their views but at this point if people are supporting Trump it's either because they see themselves in him because he's a this successful white man or it's because they're racist and homophobic and xenophobic etc etc like I don't think prior to this moment in time I think that I would have been more willing to listen to an argument about um about politics not being racialized or like 
me still being able to be your friend, even though you're a Republican. Like at this point, if you supporting Trump, that means that you don't support my humanity. And like, I can't, I can't get with that. And I, sh- I don't feel like I should mm-hmm. be expected to or made to or, you know, felt like I'm, I'm being bigoted because I'm trying to protect myself from this racial hatred. But I say the best mm-hmm. thing for people to do is just to, to do their part. Yeah. White people do their part as far as using their privilege to dismantle white supremacy and black people doing their part as far as black people, other people of color doing their part as far as just like joining the resistance mm-hmm. and pushing back. I think everybody needs to push back because even though it's not going away, if we just like just lay down and, and let life happen, then there's no telling where we would be. Right. Yeah. And I mean, to some people that might sound like, well, that's intense. But like, I think what you're saying is essentially just like take advantage of the fact that we do live in a democratic country for those of us that do. Um, Again, that's not everybody that's listening. But for those that are here, like you're basically telling us, like, take advantage of the voice that we have. And that is everybody like taking advantage of the platform that you hold. And, you know, if you're white, definitely the privilege that you hold and and just whatever in whatever means that you can so Mm -hmm. I think that makes sense and that's a great message and you're totally right going back to participating in the movements like I said a lot of times they are controversial and you know people have really Mm -hmm. strict opinions on them and whatnot even I just I was talking to somebody today I was trying to explain what affirmative action was to one of my students in like a really simple way and then somebody else jumped in and the response would really bother me. And I'm still thinking about it. Like they were talking about what discrimination is. And I'm like, I just, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with you. So it's still bothering me. And I'm like, man, I should have just said what I actually thought, but I didn't want to get into it. So <laughs> it's, it's hard. And I get that. Yeah. Like, you know, you were at work, right? That's the thing. Yeah. In front of a student. Yeah. <laughs> So it's it is hard, and and two, the student's black, and the person that was arguing me was white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, seriously, like seriously, do you hear yourself talking right now? Mm-hmm. Basically saying that because, like, it might be easier for a person of color to get into a school that that's equals discrimination. I'm like, I don't. That's not what I think. Yeah, I but mean, it's it's not. Yeah, because of implicit bias and because of all of these societal factors but that's how that that's how we have conversations that end up going around in circles and that's why how we have trump as a president because people believe things that just aren't true and i and with like i totally understand like you know why you didn't go down that road with that person but i just kind of think about like what that would have what that could have done for that student that was there you know had you i know i know that's Um, what i'm thinking too and i'm like man that really bothers me i want to bring it up again but i'm so intimidated too like because i don't know enough to really argue well and so mm -hmm. that i mean that goes back to why like education and history Mm -hmm. is so important but yeah, it's, man, it's so frustrating. And I'm like, oh man, I, that, that is still bothering me because I basically agreed with her. And then later I was thinking about it. I was like, wait, I don't agree with that. Like, why did I agree with her? Like, just to end the conversation, like, that's so dumb. Mm-hmm. So and it happens that, I mean, that yeah. happened to me. Like after one of our classes, it was um, a white woman, we were leaving you know, I, my topic is black student activism. So at the end of class, we do these presentations and stuff. And she was talking to me about um, 
uh, a protest on campus and she was saying like that she was frightened because people were beating on the windows and stuff. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, I guess they, they could have not beat on the windows, but yeah. no, like they're trying to get your attention. That's the point. Right. And like, you know, you being afraid, being inside your office, what about these students, these young people who are, they may not be afraid, but it's definitely a hostile campus. Like, so they're, they're walking around unarmed or unprotected by the, the walls of a, a building. Like they walk around every day on this campus and are subjected to microaggressions and macroaggressions and being called the N word and having teachers like talk to them crazy or ignore them or, you know, they, they're dealing with all these things. So like, I feel like them banging on the window should be at least your concern. You should be more yeah. concerned with like why they're banging on the window, right. like what you can do to make their experience better. But like, I, I get that, that I, I do. Yeah. And I just say like moving forward, the next time that happens, cause it's likely you going to happen again. Yeah. Like, you might feel more empowered to to push yeah. back. Yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah. And I I feel like I just can't be afraid of like looking dumb. Like, yeah, I don't know a hundred percent what I'm talking about. Like I'm not the most educated person on this issue. But yeah, I don't know. I just need to not worry so much about what it looks like and just actually say what I think. So mm-hmm. anyways, thank you for that pop talk. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, okay, going back to my actual question. So a lot of times these things can be controversial, right? Like everybody has their opinions on this or that and Black Lives Matter and, you know, whatever. So what would you say, I guess first I want to ask, what are some like stereotypes that you've noticed, like both as a participant in student activism and a and someone who studies it? What are some stereotypes that you've noticed that people have about participating in activism or like the activist movements? Um, Something that has uh, come up in my research is like this fear of the word radical. Yeah. I think that, so when you hear radical, you think like people like, I don't don't know what comes to mind when you hear radical, Mackenzie. Like someone who, like you picture kind of a negative, like a really intense person who would just Mm -hmm. at any cost like, do you know die for what they believe in to the point where people would be like wow that person's a little intense for sure like they i think specifically thinking about activism like anarchy like comes to mind like they just want to tear everything down which there are some radical activists that don't believe in reform and believe that we need to tear shit down and start over but radical just means like to get at the root so if you think talking about christianity like i the way that i would envision that is like you're thinking about the way that that Jesus walked the earth yeah. and you're trying to right. to emulate that or like you know live out the principles same with activism like if you're a radical activist you're trying to get to the the root of the issue the problem the concern so i think one stereotype about getting involved in activism is that it could be violent or dangerous um uh, and and that's that's not the case. I mean, sometimes things do escalate, but in a lot of instances, you know, that's be- that's because of like the police or mm-hmm. people people like if you think about what happened in Charlottesville, which we were talking about the KKK earlier, and that's essentially who was marching in Charlottesville. So, but Virginia is still considered the South. But anyway, back to what I was saying, um, stereotypes about activism that. I don't know if this would be considered a stereotype because it is accurate in some senses, but that like activism is time consuming. Um, but with that, I, w- I would say that 
you have to practice self-care. I think that um, a lot of activists experience burnout, but one, because there's not a, enough people out here, you know, fighting back. I, I, I personally, like I'm, the reason why I'm doing this research is to figure out a way to raise up more student activists mm-hmm. so that like we can try to make, try to make campuses a, a safe and inclusive place for all students because like I said I don't know a whole lot about black feminism but and I'm gonna butcher this but I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna try but one of the theories is like you know if you you enact policies and practices that make things good for black women they will inherently make things good for everybody because like black women are treated so bad that like if you focus on making things right for this one group of people everybody wins I, I think that there is like some some truth to that principle like there was like i don't i don't i don't see why it is so difficult to mm-hmm. envision a world where everybody's free yeah totally but stereotypes about activism mm-hmm. oh i mean like the in the literature a lot of like campus administrators they kind of view student activism or black student activism like they don't get it like they feel like it's petty they feel like students are whiny or petulant and that's that's not the case. I, th- I think with particularly like with the research that I'm doing, like the point is like students want you to listen to them. They want you to enact policies, as you discussed earlier, and and procedures that make campus uh, a safe and welcoming space for them. Because like college is stressful for anybody. But when you put like racialized issues on top of me just trying to like get an A, in this this engineering course or this this English course or what have you like that's a lot and I don't and I I feel like that's that's obvious but because of the way the society is set up it doesn't seem as obvious as it is yeah sure yeah those are good to be aware of especially the one what you said about like it being I mean just the term radical like you said like it seems really intense in a way to go and actually march in a protest or something like that like even if you morally support a cause mm-hmm. or whatever you're like yeah i'll hang that sign up on my door mm-hmm. but it's a it's a lot more effort to go like actually participate in something and like you were saying that's not always going to be the mm-hmm. answer like sometimes it's going to be just in the day-to-day conversations like correcting somebody when we hear something that we believe is wrong or whatever it is but yeah i think it's important for people to mm-hmm. know like not all the negative images you might have in your head of a protest or a movement that's not always going to be the case like it's not typically going to be violent or you know whatever or it's not always going to be like you're lying in the street for 10 hours to you know protest something or whatever like there's so many ways that you can get involved and like we were saying earlier use your voice so yeah I like that you address some of those for sure and just really quickly as far as using your voice I just want to also make sure that I like actually verbally say Mm -hmm. that like with allyship be present and and use your privilege but don't like co-opt the movement don't like white savior complex yes like that was one thing that irked me about Black Panther like I I mean, it was nice to have the nice white man, but like, mm-hmm. I, f- I feel like did that have like did that have to be in there? Like, sure, I don't know, but that's again, um, as far as co-optation, like thinking about student activism on campus, like a lot of times, um, 
work that students have done, it is co-opted by the institution and like in, institutionalized, which is like positive on one hand, because like you can get funding to, to do whatever it is that you're trying yeah. to do. But it's also a negative because a lot of times the original aim of the program is, is, is lost in the the bureaucracy of, of campus. Um, same with um, like thinking about being helpful to to Black Lives Matters or these these racial justice um, initiatives. Just like you know, I, I think I don't think that people that want to help white people that want to help should like shy away from those experiences, but also be mindful um, about the space that you are taking up. Like you know, if it's time to talk, make sure that you you aren't like monopolizing the conversation. Make sure that you aren't trying to to infuse your experiences into these conversations like i think that there i think that there, that allyship is necessary but i think that we should have more conversations about what that looks like and and how to be most helpful hmm. sure yeah i think that's interesting and a good point and maybe that's something especially for white listeners to take away from this conversation that like if they want to be involved in something like particularly that's like a black movement or something like that or you know whatever other race it is Mm -hmm. that maybe they should first ask questions like don't just assume a role or you know come in as like that quote-unquote savior or whatever Mm -hmm. but ask how their allyship could best be used do you think that's safe to say advice yes yes okay. i agree and and don't don't be afraid of the the cultural mistrust or like you know if you get a side eye like why are you here just because there are so many instances where like white people show up in spaces to to take the shine or to like literally take something away from a people yeah. so yeah i just like if you're really about it if you really like want to be an ally and you want to be of assistance like you know Go in humbly mm-hmm. and talk to the folks on the ground and see what, what they need and how you could be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. I think that's great advice since I'm assuming majority of my listeners are white, although I have no idea. So hopefully this is speaking to all kinds <laughs> of people. So yeah, that's great. So, okay, one thing, we're, we're close to the end here about me asking you all these questions, but I did want to ask you, and maybe you kind of already answered this already, I'm not sure, so I'm sorry if I'm being repetitive, but you told me when we were chatting earlier about how like reframing activist movements could help to make them more effective. So can you talk about what you mean with that? Like, was that referring to kind of that controversy that stands around a lot of these movements or like that thought of it being too radical? So with that, I, I'm not advocating for us like shying away from like, radicalism, but I am, I guess one stream of thought is, for people who, who um, you know, listen to dominant narratives or like if they see something on the news about Black Lives Matter, they'll like automatically believe that like there was a ruckus yeah. or that that like Black Lives Matter is a terrorist group, like houseway. But, you know, like being being um, critical and interrogating the things that you are, are told about these movements, like, you know, trying to seek out more information 
um, to like get at the the reality of what things are. Because just like that, your coworker who believed all these things about discrimination that weren't true. Like if you're not engaging in conversations with people who like have these lived experiences, it makes mm-hmm. it all the more easier for you to like believe these non-truths. So I think that actually like seeking out information is one way that you go about or that people can go about like reframing their um, beliefs or perceptions about black student activism or um, activism in general. Um, Also, um, when I I say that, I say that in regards to um, like campus communities, because I think on, on college campuses, like the administrator's goal is to make the school look good you know, to get people to come there and pay their tuition, like capitalism. But like, I get it. People also have to do their jobs. But with that, like this stuff isn't meant to change. But what if like enough people got on board and it did change and it changed for the better? I think that we could get somewhere if if folks change, they, if, if folks reframe the way that they were thinking about activism and if these these institutions, whether they be colleges or corporations, hospitals, what have you, if they rethink the way that they view activism, the way that they engage with with activists. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I I think that's a good, I guess, thing to just be thinking about and something that's really interesting. And I think part of that maybe even comes from just like, for those of us that are watching these movements take place, like reframing it in our minds, which I think you've helped us to do just in this Mm -hmm. conversation. So that's good. Okay, so again, this might have been something we already answered, so I don't want to be too repetitive, but what would you say for people that are listening that are like, okay, that's like a really good message, I agree with that, but I'm not a student or whatever, like I'm a stay-at-home mom or I'm, you know, I work at a school and I, I can't do that or whatever, like what would you say to people that feel like maybe they're not as able to get involved like how how do you think they could still support something that they believe in sure i say like do something i think that that through my research that was one of the main um like ideological shifts that i had um and that was like what activism is and what it entails like so prior to you know embarking on this research my my thoughts was like activism is like getting out in the streets like, you know, being present, um, direct action, sort of protesting. Um, and it is that, but it's it's more than that. I think really talking to, to students that, that helped me to see like the importance of there being people in boardrooms to argue, um, well, not argue, but there is a necessity for people to be in boardrooms to like represent people that are minoritized or oppressed in in whatever way. And everybody can't do that. You know, the person that is uh, more oriented for the street can't necessarily be in the boardroom because there are rules for all of these different systems that we um, exist in. Um, just like, you know, if you're a stay-at-home mom, like, talk talk to your family members who are Trump supporters. Like, I think that 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 stay-at-home mom can reach people that I would never have an opportunity to talk to if they're not in my classroom. And with my TA, I don't even, I talk about first-year experience. So, like, I'm I'm just saying that to say everybody could do something. Now, I personally believe that regardless of what you do, there should be some time spent out in the streets. But, I mean, I'd rather you be doing something than nothing at all. 
Absolutely. I agree with you. I think that's really cool. And that's probably compelling for people to hear. Um, Like if we believe in something, we don't just want to watch it on the news and be like, that's awesome. Like go them or whatever. And maybe even like the littlest thing you could do is make a donation or whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Just something to support the cause. And that's where like asking a question is huge. Like, hey, I can't come participate in a protest. Like, Maybe you really can't for legal reasons or something like where you work, it's like a conflict of interest or I don't know. But, you know, if you can't physically do it, like what can you do? And like, don't be afraid to ask those questions. Like, how can you help? So Absolutely. And also, like you said, education. Like, I think learning more about the issues, learning more um, about the society that we live in, because like. This, this could be a whole nother conversation, but like everything is a lie, like from the things that we eat to the to like yeah. the political institution, health, like it's all, yeah. you know, we're fed these these scripts that we're supposed to abide by and that we think of mm-hmm. and, or that have been normalized. And we think that that's law, that that's what it has to be. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily the case. So I think the mm-hmm. more that you read, the more that you educate yourself about like yeah. the racial realities, um, but just like realities in, in life in general, knowing history, history is boring, but it's so like vital, you know, like, there's so much information there. Like there were people, there were good white people talking about like segregation being wrong, like in the forties and they were railroaded. They, their political careers effectively ended, but like, just think like people been knowing this stuff, Mm -hmm. but yet we're still like fighting these same, these same issues. So read a book. That's how I'll end. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. And there are a lot of good books. I think like you said, history can totally be boring, like from a textbook, not that exciting. But if you find a cause that you're actually passionate about and you find a good book Mm -hmm. on it, oh my gosh, you'll be like so intrigued and you won't want to stop reading. So I think that's good. Or if you don't like reading, like try a documentary. Yeah, Yeah, on YouTube, just do something. Yeah, for sure. Okay. That's the perfect segue. Let me jump to what's the most impactful book you've ever read recently or ever? I would say at this point, I would say Ethical Ambition by okay. Derek Bell. Okay. It's, a, it's a bit of a memoir, but Derek Bell is like he's considered the, the father of critical race theory. But in the book, he just kind of talks about his his uh, scholar activism essentially like he started this we didn't start but with um a group of other legal scholars like he conceptualized this this theory that really kind of explains what's going on in the world he he wrote about the permanence of racism like and the the point of critical race theory was to provide um lawyers and legal scholars with ways to talk about race in the legal system because there was no sort of um way to engage that just like like intersectionality, it, it was originally um, conceptualized by Kimberly Crenshaw. And the purpose was in, in law, there was no way to talk about instances where black women were discriminated against because of race and because of gender. Um, so just like thinking about thinking about like the the justice system and the fact that there aren't ways to like discuss these things that are going on that impact people of color. Like it's so critical race theory. It's excellent. But um, with ethical ambition, like he, um, 
he worked at Harvard for a time. I think he actually like quit Harvard. Like there was, they were supposed to hire an Asian Asian woman, and they refused to hire. Her. And I'm mm. I'm botching up the story, but essentially he like protested and ended up leaving Harvard. I think going to Oregon next because they didn't hire this woman. So like he was he walked what he talked. And for yeah. me, that book was so impactful because it's like okay. He is a black man. His experience is going to be very different from mine. But just the fact that he was able to produce good work and live an ethical life and engage within the academy without having to sell his soul. um, It was just that was uh, motivational for me. Yeah, for sure. That sounds so cool. I'll have to check that out. Um, what about something that you've listened to, like a documentary or podcast or anything like that that you would recommend to people i don't really listen to podcasts but i've been i've been doing audible i just finished the warmth of other sons oh. um it's a book by uh isabel williamson and it's about the great migration oh. and it doesn't really have anything to do with my work but it was informative just being from the south and now living in the midwest yeah. one of the women whose stories was included in the in the the book um she migrated to chicago from mississippi um, so that was interesting. It just kind of just hearing about what life was like, because one of the men, he was from Florida and worked in the Orange Grove before uh, moving to New York. And he left his town running. And I think you know, just because of my experience in the South and juxtaposing that against like the 60s and this, like the civil rights movement and knowing that and like I think the book kind of helped fill in some cracks as far as like how bad things really were and it's like you know but to actually read it and you know like you being from Seattle like I mean you probably know like the south like before actually like living there it's like mm, reservations but I think again going back to like knowing the history like it's just interesting to learn more about these people's lives and and like the migration and how that affects affects like present day society Mm -hmm. because there are implications from that that we still feel today hmm. well that sounds interesting too and maybe a little bit easier to read than or to listen to than to read <laughs> yeah because it's a really thick book i've yeah. i've had the book for several years but i was never able to get through it so audible yeah. is cool okay cool that's a good recommendation um okay do you have anybody that you look up to as a role model living or dead doesn't, doesn't matter. matter anybody first off fanny lou hamer Okay. She's uh, a black woman from Mississippi, an activist. Um, she was from the Mississippi Delta. I am not from the Delta, but um, a lot of what people think about Mississippi, I think they they conjure up um, visions of the Delta because that's where like that's where a lot of um, sharecropping was okay. going on even into the sixties and the seventies. That's also like where there were a lot of plantations, like because the the land was very or is very um, fertile in the Delta. Um, that's where a lot of like racialized incidents took place. Yeah, but Fannie Lou Hamer, she was she was dope. She she said nobody's free until everybody's free. Um, and I truly truly believe that she did a, a lot of great things. She was down for her people in in the 1960s, like when. You know, it it was it was life or death in a in the most literal 
um, sense of the word. Like she got beat up by the police because of her activism. She got kicked off mm-hmm. of the plantation she was working on. Later in her, or near the the end of her life, she started a um, a cooperative farm to like help folks in the Delta eat. Because I just learned this um, over the weekend, like sharecroppers. It was well, I know that it was basically like slavery because like the owners of the plantations, they would or of the land, they would do things to to keep the sharecroppers like in perpetual debt so that they could never leave. Like mm-hmm. slavery, right? Um, but I learned that sometimes the sharecroppers, they would get like a small patch of land to grow their own food. Otherwise, they would have to either get um, like canned goods and things that weren't very good for you from their um, their bosses or they would um, use food stamps or they would they could grow things in these little patches. But like um, during good growing years, the people that own the land, they would take those patches from the people and they would have to grow cotton on them. So just like thinking about the things that people had to endure, how much Fannie Lou Hamer specifically had to endure and she kept fighting. Like that's, um, I don't, for me, it's like, okay, like, you know, there are worse things that could happen. It really like helps me to, to keep, keep moving forward. But just like yeah. black women activists throughout history are inspiring to me. Like Shirley Chisholm, she was the first black woman to run for president. Daisy Bates, she helped the Little Rock Nine. Um, these, uh, they're also uh, members of my um, my sorority, so they also hold like a special place in my heart. Dorothy Height, um, she she was dope. She did a lot of um, like national initiatives. Um, she worked with Dr. King, marched with Dr. King. Um, she worked with several presidents mm-hmm. on presidential initiatives like to deal with um, yeah. race relations. Um, so just. Just people throughout history that I come across that I feel like their work, um, like the work that I'm doing is trying to follow in their footsteps. And also the work that they did kind of paved the way for me to be able to um, be here in a PhD program. That's so cool. Have you read uh, Septima Clark's book? I have not. That's another thing. Like it really bothers me, like the amount of like simple information that we're not taught in schools. But I was not introduced yeah. to Septima Clark until I got here to Illinois. Same. Me too. Yeah, I never knew about her until I took someone's class. So, but yeah, you should read her book. It's really, really good. And it's short. It's very easy to read. Yeah. And I really loved it. It just put a new perspective, I think, on not just civil rights, but I think Black history in general. Mm-hmm. For me, it was it was really good. And it's interesting too, as a female perspective, seeing that she, even though they're fighting for black rights, there she was still dealing with a lot of sexism, and mm-hmm. I think that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. How how long it's taken for that to kind of subside in a way? Mm-hmm. Not that it fully has, but <laughs> but yeah, that was a really good one. So you would like that too? For sure. Thank you. Yeah, and she's yeah. one of those people that was like uh, supporting MLK in his endeavors. She taught a yeah. whole bunch yeah. of activists and all that, like somebody that we should know about, somebody that should be yes. included in conversations about the yes. civil rights movement. But yeah. For sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, what about a brand or a product that you're really liking lately? Any good recommendations for me there? So you know, I talked a little, like my diet is, uh, it's not great by far, but I do try to, to do what I can, like mm-hmm. along that vein of practicing what I preach. Um, so I yeah. really... I like Essentia water. 
It's an alkaline water. Um, I don't know if you've okay. ever heard of, of um, they have it at like um, like health food stores. They sell it at Walmart okay. too. I, but I sometimes would buy cases off Amazon. But the okay. thing about alkaline water is there was this herbalist, um, Dr. CB. He'd since um, passed. And there was a lot of controversy around his death because he was like claiming to um, cure cancer with diet. Like, and so if you think about like, you know, pharmaceutical companies, like the healthcare industrial complex, like they wouldn't like that. So I'm a bit of a conspiracy theorist, but back <laughs> on to topics. So with Dr. CB, he um, promoted the, an alkaline diet because he believed that diseases arise in your body when your body is acidic. And a lot of the things that we eat aren't like actually real food. You eat pretty healthy, so yeah. Well, I'm working on it. <laughs> so he, so his his um, diet was supposed to be an alkaline diet. So he had a list of foods that you could eat to like make your body alkaline. And if you make your body alkaline, his belief is that like disease can't reside there, and that like a lot of hmm. like simple ailments that we have are it's because our bodies aren't alkaline so and then also like you know if you think about flint flint is an extreme case yeah but they're putting all types of stuff in like our water supply yeah um one thing being fluoride which is good for your teeth but it's not necessarily good for like consciousness and awareness uh, so oh that's interesting i've been drinking alkaline water all right. I think I've seen that at the store before and wondered what the heck that was about. So now I know. <laughs> That's good to know. All right. So if people want to learn more from you or kind of follow the research that you're doing, is there any way that they can connect with you? Like, are you on Instagram? I am on Instagram. I don't post often. Okay. Though. Well, what's your handle? Because I don't even follow it's, you. Uh, the Last Dragon. So D A Last Dragon, all lowercase. Okay, I'm looking it up right now. And um, okay, so would that be the best place for people to find me? I'm on Twitter too. I'm okay, Twitter a whole lot, but and I need to work on my branding because it's all over the place. But uh, my Twitter handle is like Marie with a J. Okay, um, and the the J is capitalized. Okay, awesome. Okay, well that's perfect. Just in case people have more questions and want to pick your brain on yeah. anything. I like to give them a contact they can reach out to. So thank you so, so much for coming on, taking the time and just sharing, you know, your personal experiences with even just racism as a whole and activism and kind of talking about why that's important, because I think it's a really big question mark for a lot of people. Like, should I be participating Mm -hmm. in that? Like, where do I stand with this? And so I think you answered probably a lot of questions for people. I know you did for me. So just thank you for sharing. For sure. Thank you for the opportunity to come in and go off on tangents and and share about this topic that I'm so passionate about. Yes, you can come and go off on tangents anytime because you are very interesting. (laughs) And in my opinion, you're an expert. So I love learning from you. So thank you. Well, thank you, Mackenzie. I appreciate that. So what did you think? 
I would love to hear your thoughts and I know Jerry would as well. So please make sure you reach out and let us know what you were thinking, what was rolling through your head, what revelations you had. I know for me, I felt a lot of conviction hearing about some of Jerry's experiences that she's had that are just things that I will never have to face and never have faced before. I think it's conversations like these with people that are different from us that really, really add to our perspective and can help us to understand one another a little bit better and bring some of these controversial topics to a little bit more of a personal level. I really truly enjoyed what Jerry had to say about all the different ways that activism can look. Yes, sometimes activism is getting involved in a protest or a movement, but sometimes it can just be clarifying something that's not true to a family member or a friend or correcting somebody when we hear something that's not right. I love that it can be as simple as that, but also that means the responsibility is on us. I loved what Jerry shared that the onus is on white people to dismantle white supremacy. For my fellow white listeners, I'm sure that hit you hard, and I hope you can understand what Jerry was saying by that. Wherever you're at and learning more about this topic, I think Jerry's right in the fact that we need to just do something, whether it's reading a book or watching a documentary or having a conversation. Just do something. Don't just sit back and let this conversation go to waste, but use it. Everything that Jerry and I referenced are listed in the show notes. There are a lot of great book suggestions in there, so make sure you check those out. You can view those on whatever app you're listening to or on my website, www.heartfelthippie.com. Also, please don't forget to do me that big favor and leave me a rating or review over on iTunes. It would mean so much to me this holiday season. I'm really excited about what I have in store for you as we wrap up this 2018 year and head into 2019. I've interviewed a lot of amazing people, and I just can't wait to share these conversations with you. My next episode releasing in two weeks is going to be with my friend Emily, who is an ambassador for the Noonday Collection. If you haven't heard of Noonday before, you're going to want to look them up right now and start buying some of their jewelry and accessories for the last minute Christmas gifts that you still need to get because everything they make is gorgeous. And in my conversation with Emily, you're going to hear about the story behind the pieces that they make and why this brand is so, so special. I think this is a super relevant topic, again, as we approach the holiday season where a lot of people are buying gifts and doing their shopping. I read a statistic this week from the Fair Trade Certification Organization that altogether Americans spend $465 billion a year on gifts. That is a lot of money being spent on gifts, and I can't help but wonder, what would that look like if all those gifts were going towards something truly good, something that truly made a difference? That's what companies like Noonday do. There's a lot of those awesome companies out there. So keep that in mind as you finish up your holiday shopping and how you can use your money to not just bless that one family member or friend, but to truly have an impact on this world. So stay tuned for that episode releasing in two weeks. And until then, hit me up on the gram. I've been posting a few holiday shopping tips, so make sure you check those out. And I can't wait to hear from you. Make sure you say hi to Jury too and thank her for sharing her story with us. And until then, go read a book, go use your voice, and keep seeking to get enlightened. Peace out.